0: Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am so happy that you're here with me today. Today, we're diving into benign prosthetic hyperplasia, also known as BPH. This is a super common condition. You'll definitely see it in your patients, and you'll probably see it on your exams. Now, before we dive into this topic, let's take a quick minute for a shout out, and this one goes out to Jeanette, who is using the Straight A Nursing Planner, and here's what she has to say. This planner is the best one I've come across. I love how it is organized in such a functional way and how each week is set up. It helps me with time blocking and giving space to write down things for my week that are for both personal and for school. This is definitely going to be my go-to planner from now on. So thank you so much, Jeanette, for your feedback. And I'm so glad that the planner is helping you stay super organized for nursing school. The planners are available in my Etsy shop right now. If you're listening to this in real time, at some point, I'll get them on my website. But for now, in the Etsy shop. So go to Etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash straight A nursing. I had to think about it for a second. I'll put a link in the episode notes. Okay, so let's dive into our topic. Benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH, is a non-cancerous enlargement of the prostate gland. Now, because of its position surrounding that posterior part of the urethra, an enlargement of the gland causes an obstruction to the outflow of urine. Now, the enlargement is due to the development of nodules inside the gland. This is usually due to the effect of androgens on the prostatic cells, but can also be due to inflammation secondary to things like obesity, chronic infection, and autoimmune disease. So who's most at risk for getting or acquiring BPH? The individual's most at risk for BPH, it's it's going to be the older gentleman. In fact, it's estimated that 70% of men age 60 to 69, have BPH. And then for men 70 and older, it's 80%. So it's super, super common. Additionally, genetics may play a role and a man who has a family history of bladder cancer, not prostate cancer as you would think, but bladder cancer is at a higher risk. Now, some modifiable risk factors for BPH are obesity, metabolic syndrome, excess caffeine intake, sedentary lifestyle, and excessive alcohol consumption defined as three or more drinks per day. So again, we have non-modifiable risk factors, which is age, genetics, family history of bladder cancer, and then the modifiable ones, the ones that the patient can do something about, obesity, metabolic syndrome, drinking lots of caffeine, if I was a man, I'd be really worried about myself right now, sedentary lifestyle, and having more than three or more alcoholic drinks per day. So why do we care so much about BPH? If it's benign, what's the big deal? Well, there are some complications associated with it. So these complications are acute urinary retention. So that's the big one. Because the prostate gland, remember, it's going to go kind of go around that urethra. And as it gets enlarged, it's going to cause obstruction of the urethra or a partial obstruction of the urethra. So we get acute urinary retention. We could also have urinary tract infections. When you have urinary retention, that really sets the stage for a UTI. Bladder stones could also be a complication. Renal failure or renal dysfunction due to hydronephrosis. And then we can have bladder dysfunction. So With this retention over time, the bladder wall can get thick and eventually lead to it becoming weak with an inability to empty fully, which is just going to exacerbate the problems of urinary retention. So now that you've got a little background on BPH, let's dive into caring for these patients and we'll use the straight A nursing latte method to do that. So L is the first letter. How does the patient look? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So, the signs and symptoms of BPH are generally going to be focused on the urinary issues. However, it's important to note that in some cases, especially early on, BPH can be asymptomatic. It's one of those conditions that typically develops slowly over time. So, again, in the early stages, maybe not so many symptoms, but then as that prostate gets larger and causes more of an obstruction, Of the urethra, then we have more and more symptoms. So the urinary symptoms of BPH can be categorized into two types, storage issues and emptying issues, or you might hear it called voiding issues. So issues around urine storage include urinary frequency and urinary urgency. Nocturia, which is that getting up, being woken up in the middle of the night and having to go urinate. That's called nocturia, and in some cases, incontinence. So again, issues around urine storage include urinary frequency, urgency, nocturia, and incontinence. Now, issues around emptying or voiding include a slow or weak stream of urine, straining to void, the urine stream stopping and starting during voiding, urinary hesitancy, and dribbling after voiding. And then, of course, that key sign is going to be that enlarged prostate, which is discovered with a digital rectal examination performed by the physician or the nurse practitioner. So now let's look at the letter A in the latte method, which is assess. How do we assess our patient who has BPH? So the main assessments for this condition are going to be around the patient's urinary habits, their history, and their current symptoms. Some things that you'll assess are hematuria. Does the patient have blood in the urine? Now, this can be due to congested vessels in the prostate or the bladder, but note that hematuria could be a sign of something more serious, such as cancer. You'll assess for urinary retention by using a bladder scanner, and that bladder scanner assesses the volume of urine in the bladder. You can also assess for abdominal distension as the abdomen would be distended with bladder distension. Assessed for post-void residual after the patient voids. You can do this with a bladder scanner or by performing a straight cath procedure. Now, a post-void residual of less than 50 mils indicates adequate bladder emptying. So less than 50 mils, everything is fine. While a PVR or post-void residual above 200 is considered abnormal. I tried to figure out what was going on with that range between 51 and 199, but what I basically found was above 200 is considered abnormal. You also want to ask the patient about issues they have with incontinence, issues they have with urgency, frequency, hesitation, straining to void all of those things that are the symptoms of BPH. Also ask the patient, how many times do you get up at night? to urinate. That's getting to that issue of nocturia. And you also want to evaluate the patient's current medications, as some common medications can cause issues with voiding. Things that pop into my head right off the top of the bat are anticholinergics and sympathomimetics. Now, the next letter in the LATTE method is a T, and that stands for Tests. What tests are ordered or conducted for someone with BPH? So BPH is going to be diagnosed by the physician or the nurse practitioner based on the presence of symptoms by the patient's report and the absence of other conditions that could cause those symptoms. So specific tests include the BPH Symptom Score Index. This is a questionnaire-type tool that was developed by the American Urological Association, and it's used to assess the patient's experience of their urinary symptoms. It includes seven areas that are scored based on how severe these symptoms are for the patient. These areas are incomplete emptying, frequency, intermittency, meaning the stream stops and starts as they're urinating, urgency, a weak stream, straining to void, and nocturia. If they score above 20, this is considered severely symptomatic. A urinalysis may be conducted to rule out other problems, such as cancer, diabetes, or urinary tract infection, A urinalysis will show the presence of things like protein, blood, glucose, or bacteria in the urine. Now, if that urinalysis is suspicious, then a urine culture would be conducted if we're suspicious of a UTI. The culture is going to provide us more detailed information about the specific pathogen causing that infection. Serum creatinine is used to evaluate renal function because renal impairment can cause some of the symptoms that we're seeing with BPH, but renal dysfunction can also be a complication of BPH, such as with bladder outlet obstruction or hydronephrosis. A normal creatinine level for an adult male is generally around 0.7 to 1.3 milligrams per deciliter. It would be elevated in renal impairment. Prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, though you typically think of this as a test for prostate cancer, PSA levels are higher than normal in individuals with BPH and will increase as the prostate grows. Now, just because they have an elevated PSA level doesn't mean they have prostate cancer, though higher levels could indicate higher risk for prostate cancer later on. Note that there are other reasons for an elevated PSA, such as vigorous bike riding and even having terp surgery, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Another closely related test is the PSA density test or PSAD. This test may be conducted to differentiate if the cause of the elevated PSA level is due to BPH or prostate cancer. Now, I hope I say this right, uroflometry, hopefully it's not uroflometry, but I don't think so, uroflometry. So this is an examination of how fast the urine flows. Slower flowing urine is a sign of BPH. For this test, the individual urinates through a special funnel that's connected to A device that measures and calculates the amount of urine, the rate of flow, and how long it takes for all of the urine to be passed, to be emptied. Again, when that flow is lower than expected, that is a sign of BPH. And I mentioned this earlier when I talked about assessment, but it is part of the diagnostic workup for BPH. So I'll mention it here again, and that's that post-void residual. So for this test, the patient voids, and then you measure how much urine is remaining in the bladder afterward. This can be done with a simple little ultrasound, handheld ultrasound device called a bladder scanner, or by doing a straight cath procedure procedure. straight cath is another way of saying an in and out catheter or a non-indwelling catheter. So we just go straight in and straight out. We don't leave the catheter in place. Again, a PVR or post-void residual less than 50, that's a normal result that indicates that the bladder is emptying adequately. If it's above 200, this is abnormal. Cystoscopy is an exam that utilizes a scope or camera to visualize the urethra and or the bladder. If the urethra narrows at the location of the prostate gland, this is a sign of an enlarged prostate. And then some patients may undergo a urodynamic pressure flow study. This is more likely to be done if they had maybe like a prior procedure for the BPH, like maybe they had a TERP procedure, and they're continuing to have symptoms. So this examination tests the pressure in the bladder during urination. It evaluates how much pressure the bladder requires before urination occurs and how quickly the urine flows at that pressure. Again, that's called urodynamic pressure flow study. And then an ultrasound can show the size and the shape of the prostate. And then if the patient's going to surgery, they may get a CT or MRI scan. This is going to provide more detailed images that show the size and exactly how and where that prostate is enlarged. So let's recap the test. We have the BPH symptom score index. That's that patient-reported severity of their symptoms. Urinalysis, often done to rule out other causes for the symptoms. Urine culture is going to really dial in if we have a UTI. Serum creatinine because renal dysfunction could cause the symptoms or be a consequence of BPH. PSA, or prostate-specific antigen, that's going to be higher in individuals with BPH. And then PSA density could help differentiate if the reason for the high PSA level is due to BPH or prostate cancer. Uroflometry examines how fast the urine flows. Slower flow is indicative of BPH. Post-void residual volume test is going to have you measuring the amount of urine after the patient voids to see how much remains in the bladder. Cystoscopy uses a camera to visualize the urethra. And then urodynamic pressure flow study may be done if we need to take a closer look to see how the bladder is functioning. An ultrasound can show the size and the shape of the prostate And then a really detailed look would be done with a CT scan or an MRI. The next letter in the Latte Method is T, and that stands for treatments. What are we going to do to help out this guy who's got BPH? So the first-line treatment for BPH is lifestyle modification, and this includes things like limiting fluids before bed, so they're not getting up and having the nocturia. That's going to obviously help with those symptoms. Limiting caffeine, limiting alcohol intake, and limiting foods that irritate the bladder, such as spicy foods. The patient will also be encouraged to increase their physical activity and maintain a healthy weight. Now, some other simple things the patient can do to help with their BPH symptoms are Kegel exercises, timed voiding, and double voiding. So timed voiding means the patient attempts to void at regular intervals, like every 90 minutes or every 120 minutes throughout the day. Double voiding is the practice of trying to void a few minutes after urinating to get out any residual that remains in the bladder. We'll talk about Kegel exercises in just a moment. Now, a specific treatment for urinary retention is straight catheterization. Remember, a straight cath does not mean that the patient has an indwelling, chronic, all the time, there catheter. Straight cath is a catheter where you go in, you drain, and then you come out. Sometimes it's called intermittent catheterization. We call it IO catheterization, in and out catheterization where I work. So this could be performed on a schedule or in cases of acute urinary retention. Because the prostate causes a partial obstruction of the urethra, it might be kind of difficult to catheterize this patient. So using a smaller gauge catheter can be really helpful. Now, in some cases, the patient may need to use a special type of catheter called a de catheter. The de catheter has a slight bend at the tip that helps it get past obstructed areas of the urethra. So if you have a patient with Chronic urinary retention, it's happening all the time. Why wouldn't they just have a Foley catheter or an indwelling catheter? Well, actually, doing this intermittent catheterization is preferred over an indwelling catheter due to the much, much, much lower risk of urinary tract infection. And in fact, many patients learn how to perform this procedure at home. That's called self cath. You'll hear that term, self cath. Note that. INO catheterization or straight catheterization, whatever you call it, it is contraindicated in patients with recent urologic surgery, such as a prostatectomy. These patients will typically have an indwelling catheter right after surgery as they are healing. Some patients, if they can't have an indwelling catheter or have this intermittent catheterization, may require suprapubic catheterization instead. So a suprapubic catheterization is when we basically go through the abdomen a few inches below the navel. So this requires local anesthetic or a light general anesthetic. And basically what we're doing is placing a drainage tube into the bladder so that the patient can use this as a way to self-cath without going through the urethra. Now, looking at medications, the two main types of medications used for BPH are alpha adrenergic blockers and androgen inhibitors. So alpha adrenergic receptor blockers relieve bladder outlet obstruction by relaxing the prostatic smooth muscle. Common side effects are dizziness, rhinitis, and hypotension. These medications are typically taken at bedtime to reduce the incidence of postural hypotension. Common medications in this class are Tamsulosin, brand name Flomax, and silodosin, brand name Rapoflo. Two other medications you may see used are Terazosin, which goes by the brand name Hirtrin, which is more commonly used in Canada, and Doxazosin, which goes by the brand name Cardura. Note that these two medications are considered beer's list drugs, which means they can cause potentially harmful effects in the elderly. If you'd like to learn more about the beer's list, go and check out episode 169. The other type of medication you'll see used are androgen inhibitors, and these prevent testosterone from converting to dihydrotestosterone. This prevents the progression of BPH by preventing further prostate enlargement and can cause a reduction in size after 6 to 12 months of use. These medications can cause some pretty unwelcome side effects. Note that these medications can cause some pretty unwelcome side effects, including low libido, sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, gynecomastia, and breast tenderness. And yes, men can have breast tenderness as well. Common medications in this class are finasteride, which goes by the brand name Propecia, and that might sound familiar because it's often used to treat male pattern baldness, and dutasteride, which goes by the brand name Avidart. Now, a lot of men turn to herbal treatments. They're pretty commonly used, but they are not often recommended by physicians because they don't have FDA approval. They're hard to regulate. And herbal remedies have many interactions with pharmacologic treatments. But some of the commonly used ones for BPH that you might see are saw palmetto, Stinging nettle, African stargrass, and African plum. Anytime you have a patient who says they're using herbal supplements, well, first, you want to make sure you ask them if they're using any because they might not think to disclose them when you ask about their medication. So ask about herbal supplements, and then you want to either have them check with their provider or check with their pharmacist for possible interactions. And now we get into surgical treatment. For BPH. So the surgery for BPH is a transurethral resection of the prostate called a TURP or TURP procedure. So in this procedure, the prostate is accessed via a resectoscope that's inserted through the urethra. A thin filament is threaded through to the prostate and the tissue is trimmed and blood vessels are cauterized. The tissue is irrigated out with a continuous flow of fluids and the patient will come out of surgery with continuous bladder irrigation in place. After the procedure, you will be monitoring the patient's urine output very, very closely to assess for how much urine is coming out and for the color of the urine. Initially, the urine will be reddish and become lighter in color as bleeding from surgery resolves. And we're also irrigating it as we do this. So that helps lighten the color as well. You also want to be very, very aware that you're measuring output against how much Irrigant has been infused, and typically we use normal saline for the bladder irrigation. Too much fluid going in could rupture the bladder or lead to hydronephrosis. So you're keeping a very watchful eye on that urine outflow. You're also watching that catheter for clots and kinks that could obstruct outflow. And the continuous bladder irrigation is a special type of indwelling catheter that has an extra little section on it. And that little section, it's like a little extra tube, basically. And that's what connects to this giant bag of normal saline. And you infuse through that, and then the urine comes out the other ports and into your drainage bag. So, other complications after TERP besides bladder rupture and hydronephrosis because you didn't keep an eye on your continuous bladder irrigation, but actually you did. You did a really good job with that, so your patient is fine. But other complications include urinary tract infection. Anytime we're placing an indwelling catheter, we have risk for UTI. Ejaculatory dysfunction, urethral strictures could also be a complication, incontinence. Hemorrhage is a complication after any surgery, and something called TERP syndrome. TERP syndrome is severe hyponatremia that occurs when irrigation fluid used in surgery, which is very hypotonic, is absorbed into the bloodstream. If TURP syndrome occurs during surgery, the surgery is stopped. Whether it occurs during surgery or after, we also will treat with furosemide. Commonly, they give furosemide to get the excess fluid off. And in some cases, hypertonic saline may be needed. Some signs of TURP syndrome include nausea, vomiting, confusion, bradycardia, and hypertension. Now, you might be thinking, why are we using hypotonic solutions in surgery if they can cause hyponatremia? Well, the reason hypotonic solution may be used in a TERP procedure is due to the type of cautery system that's utilized. So the electrical conducting properties of normal saline prohibit its safe use with conventional monopolar cautery systems. However, thanks to the development of bipolar electrocautery systems, we can now use isotonic saline as an irrigation fluid, and instances of TURP are drastically reduced. So, a key thing to know, if your patient is coming to you after TURP procedure, find out what they used for irrigation. Prostatectomies may also be performed robotically, laparoscopically, or via an open approach, though the TURP procedure tends to be the most common. So the final letter in the Latte Method is E, how do we educate the patient about BPH? So a key component of your teaching will be around the behavior and the lifestyle modifications that the patient can include in their life. These include teach the patient to keep like a three-ish day record of their voiding, their fluid intake. This is really helpful when evaluating symptoms of BPH. You might hear this called a voiding diary. Teach the patient how to perform Kegel exercises. They're not just for the ladies. So to do Kegel exercise, identify the pelvic floor muscles, the ones used to stop the flow of urine. Tighten these muscles and hold for three to five seconds and then relax for five seconds. Repeat 10 times per session and aim for three sessions per day. Teach your patient that these might be easier to do in lying down at first, but as those muscles get stronger, they should try doing Kegels in other positions, sitting, standing, and even walking. Teach the patient how to utilize timed voiding to help prevent incontinence and double voiding to reduce the volume of urine left in the bladder after urinating. Teach the patient to stay hydrated. A lot of times when you have patients with any kind of urinary issues, they might avoid taking in fluids because they do don't want to have the issues with urination. They don't want to have the nocturia or the incontinence or any of those headaches. But it's really important that they stay hydrated to help reduce the risk for UTI. If you have BPH, you're at high risk for urinary retention, and urinary retention puts you right in line for a UTI. Instruct the patient to limit fluids before bed, limit caffeine, and limit alcohol intake. They should also avoid foods that irritate the bladder, such as spicy foods. Tell your patient that physical activity and maintaining a healthy weight are really important lifestyle modifications for BPH. And if they're taking Tamsulosin or Flomax, which is probably the most commonly prescribed medication, advise them to avoid driving until they know how the medication affects them. Now, some specific teaching for that terp procedure, in addition of course, to the risks and benefits that the physician shares with the patient, some key education points are to avoid strenuous activity after surgery. A general time frame is about six weeks. They should drink plenty of water to flush out the bladder, and that constipation, which is common after surgery with decreased activity and if taking opioids for pain. Constipation can be minimized by eating fiber, staying hydrated, and taking a stool softener such as docusate or colase. They should avoid sexual activity for four to six weeks after surgery and notify the MD if they develop a fever, are unable to urinate, or notice blood or blood clots in the urine. Now, if the patient is discharged with an indwelling catheter, you need to teach some basic catheter care, and this includes cleaning around that catheter site with soap and water daily, maintaining adequate hydration, which helps prevent UTI, keeping the urinary collection bag lower than the bladder to prevent the backflow of urine. This helps prevent UTI as well. They should keep the tubing anchored to the thigh, and this avoids and minimizes irritation of that insertion site, which helps reduce the risk for UTI. And they should report blood in the urine and any signs of infection, such as cloudy urine, pain, or fever. So there you have it, your quick overview to benign prosthetic hypertrophy. If you're not yet following the show, make sure you are so that you never miss an episode. I sometimes throw bonus episodes in midweek, and I'd hate for you to miss any of those. And if you have the inclination to rate and review the podcast, I would be so, so grateful. And maybe you'll be coming up on a listener shout out. Now, I will see you back here next week, same time, same place, where we talk about a really common autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.